On May 26, 2021, Uber, one of the most prominent representatives of platform capitalism, an engine of the gig economy, recognized the GMB union as representing its drivers after the UK Supreme Court ruled that they were workers and not independent contractors. This was a win for organized labor. But as COVID and technology reshapes the workplace and platforms become an increasingly prominent part of the economy, what will work look like in the future? I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast. Today, we'll give you the city view on the future of work. Hello, and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a thing we all love, work and its future. Joining me at the coal face of modern podcasting is Constantine Vossing. How are you doing, Constantine? Ready to get to work? Excellent. Ready for work. And we are joined by two excellent guests who are specialists in our topic. We have Melanie Sims with us. She is professor of work and employment at Adam Smith Business School, University of Glasgow. Her research focuses on workers' voice and the transition of young people into the labor market. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you. We're also joined by Jamie Woodcock. Jamie is a senior lecturer in management in the Faculty of Business and Law at The Open University. His research is inspired by workers' inquiry and focuses on labor, work, the gig economy, platforms, resistance, organizing, and video games. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, but before we start, we're going to do our first segment, which I 100% stole from Reddit. It's Explain It Like I'm Five, because I don't know too much, but I love learning stuff. Uh, so let's start with Melanie. Melanie, I'm going to ask you a simple question. What is a trade union and what does it do? So trade unions are groups of workers um, who organise independently from management. So the, one of the crucial things is that they're not organised through their employer um, and they organise to represent their interests, both to managers. Um, so maybe what makes something at their workplace better, um, inter- including like improving their pay or reducing their working time are often obvious categories but also usually more generally in the economy and political realm as well. So they'll often organize campaigns um, across a sector or to campaign around sick leave at the moment um, is a big campaign of the trade union movement in the UK. So they vary quite a lot what they look like between countries. Um, In the UK, we tend to focus on the workplace, um, but the crucial thing is they're independent associations Uh, of workers who organize themselves to represent their own interests. Thank you very much. I think I now have a little bit of a better idea about what a trade union is, which is good because I'm a member of a trade union. Uh, So I should probably have figured that out beforehand. Uh, But now let's move on to Jamie. Jamie, I got a question for you. What is platform capitalism and what's new about it? So platform capitalism is an idea that more of Uh, the world is being organized on platforms. Now, platforms, and I'm conscious of keeping this explained like I'm five, so I'm not going to swear, but is a kind of nonsense idea that many of these companies no longer operate like companies, but as a place where things are shared and traded. So often companies like Google or Apple or Facebook are talked about as being platforms. But one of the most famous examples is Uber. So claiming not to be a taxi company, but instead somewhere where drivers and passengers decide to meet each other and, uh, and take on a service. 
So in a way, what's new about it is this attempt to make it sound like a taxi company is no longer a taxi company and find a way to make loads and loads of money, not only through exploiting workers, but also through selling people's data. Thank you very much. I now think I know a little bit more about platform capitalism as well. And I think, I don't know, I'm going to use my magic intuition and say that maybe unions and platform capitalism might be on a collision course uh, in our conversation. But before we get into that, I need to pass you over to Constantine, who is going to apply his rigorous torture device, the crystal ball. Yes, I'm loving it. You know, forcing people to say yes or no, where they have so many things in their mind that they really want to say. Uh, it's, a, it's a very special kind of torture, I can tell you that. Uh, but please stick with us. <laughs> we'll, you'll have the opportunity to talk about all of the details, and we'll get back to that in, 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 in lots of detail uh, afterwards. I have 10 questions, uh, and I'm going to ask uh, all of these questions to each of you in sequence. I'm going to start with uh, Melanie and then with uh, Jamie. And then after five questions, we're going to switch uh, the order to uh, give uh, Melanie a little bit uh, of the benefit of hindsight for the second half. Okay, are you guys ready to do the crystal ball? Look into the future with us? Yep. Fantastic. All right, let's start with Melanie. Question number one, 10 years from now, Will most of us still go to the office for work? Of those of us who still work in an office, uh, work in an office now, yes. Exactly. That's what I, exactly. Yeah. Well, those in factories are not going to switch to the office. Yeah. Well, those are that are already you're absolutely right about that. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So that's a yes from Melanie. Jamie. No. Question number two: A hundred years from now, will people look back at our working conditions with the same disbelief as we do? when we think about 19th century factories? Yes or no, Melanie? Yes. Jamie? Yes. Question number three. Karl Marx wrote in 1846 that one day it will be possible, quote, to hunt in the morning, go fishing in the afternoon, raise cattle in the evening, write essays after dinner, just as I like it, without ever becoming a hunter, fisherman, farmer, essay writer end quote was he right is this going to happen melanie no jamie uh, no all right question number four is having a strong work ethic something to be proud of melanie no jamie no question number five will many of us work on digital platforms soon melanie I'm too much of an academic. I want to query what many means. Yes. <laughs> Jamie. No. All right, let's switch the order around now. We'll start with Jamie and uh, question number six, Jamie. Will we see significant movement toward the adoption of a universal basic income during the next few years? Yes or no, Jamie? Nope. Melanie? Nope. Jamie, will labor conditions in the global south ever catch up with those of the global north? Yes or no? Yes. Melanie? A very hesitant yes, because I think we'll go backwards. Oh, okay. Well, that's definitely something I'm going to flag here for further discussion. Great. Will the 2020s become the decade of the revitalization of massive and encompassing unionism? Yes or no? Yes. Melanie? No. Question number nine, Jamie. Will unions become all-purpose NGOs? instead of more narrowly defined organizations for interest representation? Yes or no, Jamie? No. Melanie? No. 
Question number 10, Jamie. Is it fair that CEOs have salaries 100 times higher than their employees? No, no, no. <laughs> Melanie. Most emphatically, no. All right. So thank you very much. We all looked into the crystal ball and we learned quite a bit from you guys already. And uh, you guys have interesting points of, uh, I don't want to say dissent, but disagreement over some uh, issues. And uh, I think we're going to go ahead and uh, explore some of those questions. Uh, actually, let's start with the first one, if that's uh, okay with everyone. And that was uh, about an issue that has presented itself very recently uh, uh, with, with some acuity in the context of uh, the whole COVID pandemic. The question as to whether we should want to even go to the office. And here, uh, Melanie said that, yes, even 10 years from now, most of us still go to the office for work. And Jamie said, no, that's not going to be the case. Um, why do you think that, Melanie? So I was taking the category of people who already go to the office, which I think is an important subcategory of workers, and it's not most of us. So that's the first really important thing to say there. But of those of us who, until March 2020, were working in offices, I think, yes, we. I think we will. I think we will for a number of reasons. I think we will... I mean, the, the most dominant pressure in that will be rentier capitalism. There's no doubt about that. Rentier capitalism um, has a dominant need for us to be going to collective places of work. And the powers that would be required to shift that, I just can't see those happening within a 10 year time frame. But I think there's something much more interesting going on as well, which is I think the, the social aspects of work um, are very much um, missing from my life. I'm, I've been working at home for, uh, well, since March 2020. I'm acutely aware that most of the people around me have been going to work because they don't work in the kind of professional work that I do. But of those of us who are professionals um, and who, who do office-based work, I think it's very, very difficult to run a large complex organization like a university, but also like a, you know, a window cleaning company or any other kind of organization uh, without those kinds of social interactions. So, so I've cut this question a slightly different way. But I think there's a similar answer in there, right? Is that I think of the people that work in offices, which is a minority, there are still some people who had to go to offices regularly. So I'm thinking here about call center workers, for example, um, who aren't going to have to go back because a lot of them didn't have the opportunity to, to not go in, right? I also think there's a bit of a question here about uh, all the other people who've had to go to work. And I also think all the other people who've had to go to work to support offices um, is cleaning and security work has carried on throughout the pandemic. So in a sense, the people who are going back are a kind of small number in a sense already. And I think a lot of the people who've been able to work from home are the people who have the power, if they don't want to go in, to not go in anymore. Um, and so I say that I have a kind of different working pattern to Melanie. Uh, I, I love working from home um, and I'm never going to go back to the office. Um, but that's because I have the bargaining power to say that I don't want to. Whereas I think many, many other people will do whatever capitalism demands of them, right? And can I add two other points? I mean, uh, so one is that um, I don't have space in my house. Um, I'm giving over a large chunk of my property that I'm spending money on to my employer at the moment. And I 
personally resent that quite a lot. Um, I certainly, I'm 48 years old. I have only relatively recently, I mean, in the last five years, acquired enough space in my property to be able to even consider doing that. So, so I don't, I literally don't know what this would have looked like if I was 28 or 38. Um, and this, this space that I'm working from now is also having to be liberated from other private uses. It's my spare room. I can't have visitors at the moment, so it doesn't make much difference. But under normal times when people would be visiting, there are real trade-offs for me personally there. But the other thing is I manage 80 people and that's quite a different, I think that's a big difference between me and Jamie. I line manage 80 people. I had only known them for about three months prior to lockdown. It's been phenomenally difficult to manage a team <laughs> when you, I, I've, I've recruited seven people in the last year. I have no idea how tall they are. I see them regularly on Zoom, but I have no clue. I, you know, I haven't shared coffee with them. I haven't broken bread with them. And I think those social interactions are really important. To follow on, I mean, I manage no people and I work at a distance university. So, you know, it's a different dynamic, right? And, I, you know, I also think in part, it's about what we go to the office for, right? If you're managing people or you're building those relationships at work, it's really, really important. And, you know, if you are like the 0.001% of lefty ethnographers, who live in London and don't want to commute to Milton Keynes on a regular basis, it works, right? But I do think, and, you know, I, I go to these meetings at work and I go to other meetings where people talk about, you know, some people can work from home, some can't. And so often we don't ask that question about, do you have the space? You know, are you safe? Do you feel safe at home? Is the broadband good enough? You know, is it is it an environment that that works for people? And unfortunately in the UK, for most people, there isn't a spare room, you know, there isn't a, a, a place to work from home. But those voices are like are lost from the debate often, right? Yeah, I think that that's a really excellent, excellent points have been made by both of you about the colonization of private spaces by work that's been excellent. Like, I think this has been a trend that's been building in the way that contemporary capitalism operates, but it's been accelerated exponentially by the COVID crisis. And one of the things that I've been sort of rummaging over rumbling over in my mind is whether this will retreat uh, I can see the sort of there's a tension you know like Melanie was saying there's a sort of a managerial thrust to get people back into the office there's the need to build you know the solidarities and the teamwork that accompany labor uh, but at the same time I have you know speaking to friends who work outside of the university a lot of their firms have been thinking about downsizing their physical offices in order to save money because you know if you're a firm that works in or is located in the city of london for example and you can suddenly say well we can slice our office space in half you're going to save a lot of money on your rent in i don't know the cheese grater right uh, and there does seem to be this pulling apart uh, of capitalism about which way it's going to go and i i'm undecided about where that pendulum is going to land uh, outside of the university i think universities definitely will be going back to the office i think there's there's an interesting point there about uh, when I when this pandemic first hit and I had to sort of my main role at the moment is as a manager and I had to kind of do some really quick thinking about you know how do you how do you turn a, such a large complex organization into a virtual organization so quickly the answer is of course we all fall over while it happens and it takes a long a lot longer than we'd hoped but one of the things that I, I was reading about quite a lot is how virtual organizations or organizations that are presented as virtual organizations actually organize themselves 
very few of them have no contact at all. There's almost always set piece interactions where everyone is expected or sometimes required to be there. Nobody manages their redundancy or disciplinary process remotely or nearly nobody does. You know, if you're having a disciplinary meeting with someone, you will almost always be required to fly there or get there in some way, you know, these kinds of things. So these kinds of difficult social conversations are almost always handled in person. As are social events, all of these organisations have away days, fun days, you know, uh, information exchanging days, which are actually about people interacting. Um, and I think that idea of breaking bread is really important. It's really important to us as humans, the idea that we share hospitality with each other. It's really basic to human society. I just can't see that we're gonna kind of completely move away from that in the workplace, but no other space in our lives. That seems very unlikely. I'm, I'm hearing two messages here and that's fascinating. One is, um, well, the office sucks and all those, you know, uh, ethnographers, as Jamie put it, you know, uh, you don't want to sort of commute to Milton Keynes, uh, you know, they can stay at home and that's great for them. And then I hear uh, Melanie say, well, wait a second, uh, work is not just, you know, a salaried uh, labor, it, it also has the social component. And, uh, you know, that ethnographer might get really lonely if he doesn't, if no one forces him to, you know, at least go to the office once in a while and meet some people. Um, so it seems to me there's no clear-cut cleavage over this issue, uh, you, you, right? Uh, it, it seems there's sort of a sort of very sort of interesting interaction effects, so to speak. Jamie, what do you think? Yeah, I guess the kind of the point maybe it's worth making is I, I worked from home before the pandemic um, as much as I possibly could, mainly because I don't really like going to work. And at least then you can do your work from different places with different people and so on. So I think I'm, I'm an edge case that we definitely shouldn't generalize from, right? And I think the point that Melanie makes is a really important one, is when I work from home, I don't work on my own. Uh, you know, I go and spend time with organizations that I partner with, with colleagues in the city and go and have coffee or work together somewhere else. Uh, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to be near the Barbican. It's a short journey away so I go and work in the Barbican because you can work there for free again public space is a rarity for most people in the UK but in East London you can find bits of public space sort of so I think you know this is a, it's a question about what people get from work and I think it, this is always a risk with academics right that we we look at our own working conditions and we extrapolate from them because most people have an experience basically nothing like ours is they're told to come into work whether it's safe or not and they have to do it so I, yeah i guess it's just to kind of yeah don't don't draw me as a case study for this but that's it's also probably... the health and safety i think is a really important point as well because we need to not forget the equality and diversity issues that go around that and not think about not lapse into really simplistic thinking of thinking that you know working from home is good for example for working parents because for some it is and for, for others um it's not and it depends very much what other kinds of care they have around them equally you know some people with various forms of disabilities have found this um, mode of working extremely inclusive others have found it extremely problematic so I think we need to make sure there's an equality and diversity angle to what we're talking about and where feasible and in our professions it's very feasible but in others <laughs> it's not always very feasible um, those are integrated into our ways of working as we come out the other side of this slightly crazy 
and we uh, Jamie's right we need to we need to remember that people who make policy about work and employment tend to have very good jobs and we need to not fall into the trap of thinking that that everyone has jobs like ours because they most people don't one thing to add to this is you know i think the pandemic was an opportunity to rethink work in quite profound ways and i think one of the risks is it's become caught between binaries that don't necessarily apply to that many people right the debate at least in popular culture is is was this a great working from home experiment or not are you going to have to go back to the office or not rather than a kind of how how was your work before the pandemic how was it during the pandemic and what would you like to change coming out of it is for most people who go to work in the UK the working from home or working in the office isn't actually the key thing that people want to talk about right and it's let a whole load of issues around how we're managed how we're paid our contract statuses our autonomy or lack of autonomy in the work we do and so on like all those questions have kind of slipped away through the pandemic to be this like do you want to commute or not or you know which is only a little bit of most people's experience right I think that's a really good point. Uh, I was looking through media coverage about work patterns during the pandemic. And if you look at the media, you would get the impression that 80% of Britons have been working from home during the pandemic. And it's just not true. You know, Most people are going to work and going to work under conditions which are significantly less safe than they were prior to the pandemic. And that just doesn't seem to capture the public imagination the same way that the idea that someone's a, you know, a service worker who gets to sit at home all day has captured the headlines. And I, I think that's a really excellent point that both of you have brought up, that work is a very diverse experience for most people. And generalizing the white collar experience is just not a reflection of reality. But perhaps we should pivot the conversation a little bit because there's something I, I'm, I'm dying. I'm dying to ask about, and it comes from the crystal ball question. Now, Here's a spoiler. I'm from North America and North Americans, you know, Americans and Canadians, we love work. You know, it is ground into us from the first day you start school. You go to work, you get your good grade, you're going to get a good job, you're going to do good in university, work hard and all your dreams will come true. It's, it's the settler colonial fantasy. Now, we got negative responses from both of you to whether having a strong work ethic is something to be proud of. And I'm really interested to know why. Melanie, would you like to start us off? Partly work is rubbish for a lot of people. I mean, let's be honest. My work is rubbish a fair amount of the time and I've got a very good, relatively secure, well-paid job. Uh, there's still a lot of it that I don't like doing. I, But I think... A work ethic is, uh, in certainly my conceptualization, deeply embedded in a religious formation of various concepts and ideas. Um, and I'm not sure how, I'm not sure whose who's purpose that's serving uh, for a start. I'm not sure, uh, I'm not convinced that that's always serving the interests of people who work, let alone people who work hard. But the other and perhaps more obvious uh, reason I said no is because it doesn't always correlate to success. Um, I think we're full, we're, we're a, we have a culture that's full of people who believe that there's a link between hard work and outcomes. And that's simply incorrect. You know, there's far more chance. If that were true, we wouldn't have, for example, some of the gender disparity that we see in the, the most elite jobs, for example. 
Uh, I, I, for one, do not believe that that women, for example, necessarily work less hard, and that's what explains <laughs> those gender uh, disparities. But we could take that for any uh, any group uh, who's underrepresented. So. Uh, for, so for two reasons, I, th I, so I think I have a sort of moral objection um, because I, I, I instinctively rail against the sort of religious roots of that concept. Um, but also, uh, you know, I, I just don't think it holds true, <laughs> evidentially, empirically. So, so I kind of stuttered on this question because I think it's quite a, there are a number of ways, again, which is a good crystal ball question, right, of a number of ways you could cut this question. And I am of that ironic group of lefty academics who writes about how terrible work is who works too much of which there are many so I'm not proud of that because you know we should work less and we should do other things with our time and so I think you know I think the risk with this is that it, if we say exactly as Melanie has said like the harder we work you know the more likely success there's clearly not a link between those things and I think the difficulty with it is as a kind of virtue, many of us work hard in our leisure activities or looking after each other or so on, is that just working hard in and of itself can be a, a useful thing elsewhere. But when it's mobilized at work to make money for somebody else and not result in us actually getting ahead or improving our, our life or so on, it's a, it's a bad thing. And we should say, you know, you shouldn't have to work hard at work you can push back on these things you can you know ask for longer break times and all this stuff and the question included the word ethic uh, therefore it's a moral question i i think arrest ethic is also profoundly radical act and i think it's it's something that we don't pay enough attention to um and in in this society i think in most societies uh, now um, and I think understanding rest as a radical act is a very important and very under-researched, very underthought area of work and employment studies, if you like. If you're working hard to benefit someone else who perhaps is in an exploitative relationship with you, that is not a virtue. That's not something you should be proud of. And, you know, there are people who will get on social media, for example, and boast about having an 80 hour a week grind. That's not something to be proud of. That's exploitation. And I think there is something to this reclaiming the ethic of rest or the ethic of, you know, the self, you know, looking inside yourself that is very much neglected in our society. And it sort of feeds into what we were saying before about uh, working from home and the colonization of personal space by work. It is sinister in a way. You know, when I think about my father, you know, he worked nine to five most days. He got home at 5.30 and he was done with work. Now, I, I won't speak for everyone else on this podcast, but my work email doesn't stop at five o'clock and doesn't restart at 9 a.m. the next day. It is constant. And that doesn't seem healthy to me at all. What I find fascinating here is that uh, in that discussion about the, the sort of the the ethics uh, of whether the work ethic and is it something to be proud of or not uh, proud of, you know, you converge on the position that it's, you know, no one should be proud to be exploited. The interesting paradox, however, that presents itself is that the labor movement thrived on being proud of being workers. It derived much of its uh, power, much of its punch from the fact that it was able to instill a sense of pride in you know, people's work. 
Uh, is that a paradox that we can resolve in the future of the labor movement, Melanie? Yeah, I think you're right that there is a that, that a lot of trade union and particularly trade union narratives in the past, but also now emphasize the dignity of labor. And dignity is the really crucial word, I think, rather than pride. You know, that, that selling your labor is is a dignified act it shouldn't be a demeaned act is you know is 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 what that's contrasting to and that i have no problem with that at all i think uh, the trade the trade union movement isn't always great uh, example you know example of um you know rest as a radical act most trade union officers i know work just as many hours as academics and other professional groups and complain about it in very similar ways but i think more generally the question is about the narratives the trade union uh, movement uses in the past present but also the future about who we're building solidarity with uh, to make what arguments and i think there's there's i've written quite widely about this there's a a really really important job for the trade union movement as the as the labor market changes as who works changes as what they do changes um to really rethink what our narratives of solidarity are who are we in solidarity with what are our narratives what are our rallying cries those kinds of things and we have to rethink them because if all of those things change in 150 years as we would expect them to it becomes problematic you know, the narrative of a white working class man uh, on a you know family income that can support a family isn't the work that most people are doing so we need different narratives around that and i think the the left in general is not usually very good at narratives the organized labor movement left is has over time in my view not given sufficient attention to this narrative of what are we what are we doing this for <laughs> what's our what's our rallying cry i mean i think a couple of things to add to that which i think link back to the previous question right is that kind of hard working the necessity to do some hard work is also a part of how we end up with more rest right is you know going to meetings doing one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, spending time after work, arguing with colleagues about the way forward or, or the way to do things, is there is a kind of, you know, it's certainly true that trade union officers are, are overworked in the movement, but there's also a kind of changing the world takes a lot of work too, right? Um, and I think one of the problems is often when we look at disputes that have happened over the past few years, it's quite difficult to do what Melanie's talking about, which is to like articulate, you know, an employer wants to steal a bit of your pension or wants to make you work longer hours. It's quite difficult to articulate what we could demand on the other side. So that we could demand, you know, retiring earlier or not working Fridays or, you know, not being told what to do on a Monday because we don't want to be bossed around. You know, like thinking of these other ways of articulating that kind of pullback is it can be quite frustrating sometimes thinking about work and thinking about the balance of that kind of process of selling your labor is when we try and take something back it's considered to be being lazy or stealing or, or, or whatever it is whereas when the employer does it it's like totally normal right like you know this is just getting a better bargain from your workers or whatever it is yeah that's uh reminds me of uh some research that I've been doing recently, and I, I do research around sort of atypical forms of resistance uh, to injustice. 
And there's been this movement that's developing in China around sort of Chinese millennials and Gen Z, Gen Z, uh, who are sort of opting out of what they call the 996 culture, so nine to nine, six days a week. And instead they're engaging in what gets called a tan ping, which is lying flat, or sang culture, which is apathy culture, which is just sort of a diffuse recognition that no matter how hard they work, they're not going to get anywhere. So they might as well just not engage in the game. And I find this fascinating because it's this decentralized opting out of a crushing form of labor, but it doesn't seem to satisfy, right? You know, opting out doesn't produce the social change that both of you have been referring to that seems to come from unions. And I just find this interesting tension between this opting out in a diffused way and organized resistance. And it seems we're leaving much more to the decentralized uh, form of resistance. And that seems interesting based on what, what you both said in re relation to the question about unionization. Melanie, you said that the 20th or the 2020s will not see a rebirth of unionism. Uh, so why do you think that is? Why will people not be rejoining the labor union movement? I, th I think there's uh, uh, too many structural, com uh, structural challenges to um, to, to take that kind of time horizon. I think the question was something um, about the 2020, so the sort of 10 year time horizon. I think we'd have to be in quite a different place. And I'm talking here specifically about the UK, the US. Um, I think there are different dynamics in different, uh, in other national settings. One of the things I've argued with one of my colleagues who's now gone on to be a general secretary of a trade union, but which we wrote uh, a paper together just before she was elected to that position, was about how this particular nature of financialized capitalism, so that global change to, to capitalism that prioritizes the financial objectives above pretty much anything else. And this is a sort of oversimplification, but go with me. Actually not only causes problems for, for workers because they're often pitched against each other and um, they make it difficult for companies to uphold their side of the bargain to you know to 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 deliver on those kind of long-term employment um exchanges that we we had we had to come to expect over the, over the 20th century but it also makes it difficult for trade unions it makes it more difficult for trade unions to say we have common interests and we have common points of solidarity that joe and i were not entirely pessimistic about that uh, because we say, you know, there are moments where you can identify a coming together where we say, you know, this just isn't good enough, you know, or where, for example, around um, intergenerational transfers of wealth, for example, which, uh, you know, are very difficult to justify if the parents, for example, are, are retaining that wealth because they're scared they need, you know, the state won't step in for their social care when they're older. It's very difficult to then loan your kids money to buy a house, for example, or, or fund their university experience or whatever it is. So there's ways in which this financialization makes it very difficult for individuals, for households, uh, for, for the workplace, for managers even, in some, some situations, uh, slightly counterintuitively, but also for unions, because it makes it very difficult. It, may, it brings new challenges to saying, what are our points of, so of solidarity with these workers over here who are, have been deliberately pitched against us on the issue of pensions or the issue of uh, investing in this plant or that plant? You know, Unions, I think, can overcome that, but they have to do a lot of thinking. And it's that evidence of that thinking and then the resource to follow that through. That's always risky. It's always resource intensive. 
there are always going to be lots of failures along the way. All of that together means that within a 10 year time horizon of, say, the 2020s, I can't see all of that changing. What I could imagine is a different state positioning that then created a different institutional opportunity um, for unions to be able to start to do some of that. So I don't, but I think that would require some change of positioning by the state. I think it would be very difficult for unions as essentially a secondary organization. We talk about trade unions as secondary organizations. They're always to some extent following the agenda of other parties, other organizations, other stakeholders in the world of capitalism and work. So for all of those reasons, I don't think it's something you can change quickly. I've been looking at union change for 25 years and it's something that happens, generally happens very slowly. <laughs> Great. So Jamie, you said that there was a chance for a big revitalization in the 2020s. Perhaps you'd like to explain your reasoning. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's the, an easy one to answer, right? Uh, I mean, I guess in in, a, in part, this answer is also a hope of willing some of these things into being, right? Um, and I, I, I mean, I think Melanie's absolutely right that like over the last 25 years, over a longer period of time, like change is glacial in large organizations like trade unions. There are, you know, a number of reasons why change is, is very slow. The, a lot of these organizations are quite risk averse that the demographic patterns of their members have shifted and often onto a kind of older demographic. But I think, you know, if we look over the longer history of trade unionism, often change isn't a kind of linear process um, of incremental steps of kind of steering the oil tanker sized organizations into a better direction, is I think there are a number of periods and I'm always cautious and I think as we have someone who's written about the 19th century here, I'll be cautious about drawing particular analogies. But like, there are certain moments where the trade union movement changes very quickly, um, with the entrance of large numbers of people from new forms of work onto the kind of political stage, right? Uh, and either they're absorbed into new organizations, or they form their own organizations, or there's a mixture of the two. Uh, I, I'm also a member of, of the same union, I think probably as everyone here, but I, I, I do research with a small trade union called the IWGB, which is part of a number of small organizations that are, are not within the same confederation as, uh, as UCU. And I think there are some exciting things happening in some of these smaller unions, which I think are worthy of, of attention. And I think particularly through the pandemic, there have been a very large number of People in sectors that haven't been organized approaching small unions like IWGB or UVW and trying to get organized. Um, and one of the examples that I've followed quite closely uh, is the video game workers uh, who've, who've unionized. But I also think in parts of hospitality, uh, I think a kind of return to organizing in call centers, you know, in parts of office work that have never been organized. I think a number of people have looked at the experience of COVID and thought, I knew things were bad. And then when the chips were down, my employer has totally screwed me over and I want to do something about it after the pandemic. Now, the yes answer is about hoping that that something about it becomes a wave of organizing either in these new unions, inside big unions, a combination of the two. But I think there's a potential there, which we haven't seen 
yeah, in a long time, I think, uh, in the trade union movement. Now, since uh, since Jamie mentioned uh, someone who studied the late 19th century, um, and of course, when I say late 19th, I always mean late 19th and early 20th century. And since I love to talk about it, I have to say something about it now. But I promise I'll make it relevant for the for the uh, for the contemporary era. Uh, and it speaks to Jamie's point about rapid change. And I think that is a very, very interesting point. These, these case studies uh, uh, where you contrast cases uh, where change is really glacial and takes a long time with other cases where uh, the same kind of change sometimes seems to happen really, really rapidly. And I think an interesting, very instructive comparison here is the case of the UK or Britain uh, it, during the 19th century compared to Australia. That's a fascinating comparison because in Britain, that switch from sort of butter and bread unionism uh, to sort of affiliation with the existing conservative and liberal parties uh, to forming, uh, you know, an own party, the, the Labour Party, it took, well, it took arguably, uh, you know, over 100 years, so maybe even 150 years, you know, depending on how far you go back, but it took a very long time. In Australia, that took about 20 years at the at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century for the same kind of change to take place. And what I argue in, in, in my work on the topic is that the decisive factor is good leadership. Now, is that something that also applies to the uh, 2020s and the, the, the potential prospect of a revitalization of, uh, of the labor movement? Is good leadership the way to organize digital platform workers. Good leadership is is can be pivotal and important, right? But I think, you know, our own union shows the limits of what good leadership can achieve or not achieve, right? That just changing the leadership in a union doesn't change the entire union. Uh, and this is not meant to throw shade in any direction, but just that it requires more than just changing leadership to to change organizations or to change strategy or to, to win victories in workplaces, right? And I think, in a sense, the question of revitalization for me is about a different kind of leadership, right? Um, it's about the development of kind of smaller leadership uh, within workplaces, within, within regions, uh, is really what's missing in the UK is although there is a kind of overall secular decline in unions, um, unfortunately, what has happened in a much more stark way is the decline of that kind of rank and file leadership. Um, and I think too often on, on the left and in, in the trade union movement and elsewhere, we kind of say, oh, you know, what we need is a rank and file movement. You know, this is what will rejuvenate everything that if only people were more confident uh, to act on their own and to, to go out and organize in their workplaces and communities. And I think really the question in a sense is, you know, what has changed since the 70s or so on where there, there were these things? There were, was this kind of confident layer of, of people in the, in the union movement. And, you know, I think this is a kind of broader set of pressures across society, um, but also a broader set of pressures that affect how people interact with unions, right? Like most of us go to our union when we have a problem. Uh, it sells us something, it gives us casework advice or so on, is I think there are a number of things to be overturned in terms of people identifying not only as a union member, but as somebody who's going to transform that union. And, you know, I think we really see this in the pandemic. Sorry, this is going to turn into a bit of a rant. 
but like all the stuff on twitter of like join your join a union is like amazing to see right like everyone saying join your union but it's like not no it's nowhere near enough right like it's not join your union it's go to those meetings talk to your colleagues have those difficult conversations have those arguments and i think what's interesting in the gig economy hopefully to tie this back around to what you actually asked me about is the processes that are happening in the gig economy in platforms like Deliveroo or Uber or Bolt or so on are kind of much quicker than have unfolded in lots of other industries, right? If you think about other new industries, it often takes many years, sometimes a generation for people to figure out tactics or maybe strategies that can work to build forms of organization. I mean, I've been studying Deliveroo in London since 2016. And there's been a whole range of strikes, worker networks, joining a trade union, an international day of action, the knocking off of loads of value from, from their IPO, things that would have taken much longer before. And so I think it's a kind of exciting experiment of how people can respond to changes in work. I, you know, I don't think that they have the answers yet, right? But I think they're starting to figure out what some of those answers could look like. And weirdly, this is the exact topic of my PhD way back in 2005, where I had some case studies of organising from below, but not supported by the leadership. I had some examples of the leadership trying to stimulate change in a very top down way. And really, the only sustainable campaigns were the ones that were able to do both. Um, and sustainability, I think, is really crucial. The, the trade unions, right back to that answer I gave about what is a trade union, the standard definition given us to us by the, the great scholars who established the LSE, the, the, the web, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, talks about a continuous association of wage earners. Um, so an ongoing, continuous, sustainable is the word that I prefer because I think it's a more contemporary word organization that represents workers interests and to do that effectively you do as Jamie says absolutely have to have some sort of workplace activism you have to have organic leaders you have to have uh, things happening but it's more than just a union is more than just an individually organized workplace it's a much bigger thing than that so it needs that leadership and those leaders are legally constrained they're constrained by decisions about what are the interests of this workplace or this individual above the collective? And the collective is sometimes not even just them, their whole membership. It can be the trade union movement um, more widely. So all of those things act as kind of countervailing pressures. And a lot of what I did for my first 10 to 15 years of my career was look at really nerdy detail about the micropolitics within trade unions, about how do officers actually make those kinds of decisions? How do leaders make those kinds of decisions? And it's really hard, uh, but it explains a lot about why we see some of the optimism. Uh, if we want to be optimistic, Jamie's absolutely right. We can see all sorts of examples where exciting things are happening. Uh, if we want to be more constrained, and not necessarily pessimistic, but have a longer time. I think it might take longer. There's also lots of, you know, things that would push us in that direction. Over time, and perhaps almost inevitably with middle age, um, I've kind of gone from being massively optimistic about how quickly all of this would happen to being more moderated in my view on that. And I think that is largely a function of 
just having seen how long it takes a lot of organizations to make decisions. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would add to it is that uh, it's also really easy to lose power, I think, for the unions. And, you know, my, my dad uh, comes from the South Wales Coal Valleys. And, you know, going to my father's village, uh, you can see the legacy of the labor movement in a very tangible way in terms of working men's clubs, uh, social organizations that were intrinsic to these communities, you know, far beyond the workplace. And then, you know, the pits close and eventually just it all disappears. And these communities sort of lose their solidarity, lose their ability to organize. And I think that's something that perhaps I probably don't take seriously enough is how easy it is to lose the gains that have been made. You know, we normalize something like the weekend, for example. Well, the weekend didn't always exist, right? And there's no guarantee that it will always exist either. But that, that's just a little dose of pessimism onto the sort of the, the, the optimism of both moderate and extreme about where it goes, uh, that we do need momentum and the great struggle with capital. I feel like we need to have sort of get the red flag flying. I, it's, uh, I, I think my, my Welsh Coal Valley roots came out in that statement. But I, I mean, that image rings so true, uh, David, also in different, uh, in very different geographical and cultural contexts. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me living in Locust Point in Baltimore. Uh, well, I did live there for a few years uh, and I had the same impression. Uh, there were stevedores locales, there was uh, uh, union uh, uh, buildings, there were sort of social gathering places and there was a, there's a union history at every corner. But then you peruse the city a little, and at Locust Point, uh, which is right uh, in, in the harbor of Baltimore, in the port of Baltimore, uh, Locust Point uh, still actually has an active union movement uh, to some extent. Um, but you peruse other parts of the city and you see uh, how that has been lost, um, that constant association that, that Melanie uh, was uh, talking uh, about. And uh, it comes from structural change, uh, I think. Um, uh, and it comes from industrial decay, of course, and the inability to, to rebuild and revitalize. The one thing that I would like to uh, point uh, attention to, though, in this context is, um, is the international dimension of all of this. And I think there's two issues here. One is um, labor conditions in the global south and the global north and how they are related to one another. And the other one is, how can we learn from experiences of the labor movement in other parts of the world? And I, I mean, these are two really big uh, questions, um, uh, but uh, um, I hope we'll, we'll come to the second one about learning from other examples. But let's start with the first one, maybe, because this was one of the questions where I, you know, I made a note, and I'm going to get back to it, um, where Melanie said uh, you know, to the question, she answered the question, will labor conditions in the global south ever catch up with the global north? And both Jamie and Melanie said yes, but Melanie you know, added that, yeah, it's because it's going to go downhill for everyone. Uh, why do you think that? And, and then Jamie, well, you know, is, is that true? I wasn't necessarily su suggesting it was going to go downhill for everyone. I, 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 my intention was to convey that there might be some sort of consolidation around something that might look like a middle. I find it very difficult to believe that there won't be any disruption at all to the, um, the at the moment we have a very um, geographically specified type of uh, value extraction for different kinds of labor in different kinds of economies. Um, you know, so, so what work looks like in the global north is, is typically quite different from where, for example, manufacturing takes place now um, in the global south. 
by and large. I, I don't see any inherent reason why that would have to stay the same, uh, stay as it is now. I think it's organised in that way because of the particular flows of capital that have been encouraged by various state regimes. Those state regimes, notably China, but not only China, are increasingly asking themselves questions about how to increase their value proposal to their, to their very large population. What China does in this space is probably the single most important thing. We know that they're trying to increase what we might broadly call job quality uh, with different degrees of success, but they're trying to position themselves differently across the global economy. Um, if China comes up, I don't see that there's somehow necessarily going to be some further massive productive uh, value chain. I think there's just going to be a reorganisation of, um, it's more likely that there's going to be a reorganisation of what we've got. I could see a, quite a lot of what are currently good jobs um, in the global north becoming under significant pressure. I don't think in any simplistic way. And the the point about international uh, internationalism is that as well we we see that different nation states have different answers to this so Germany's answer of uh, collective and institutional regulation of work and employment is very different from the UK's it's under similar global pressures but those institutional arrangements are creating very different dynamics if you're a smallish firm in Germany compared to a smallish firm in the UK and I don't think we so I don't think we can put, have a simple read off of saying the global north will be, you know lose all its good jobs to China, uh, but we'll get some bad jobs back, you know that kind of thing, uh, because I think the particular modes of regulation in different uh, economies and uh, labour markets of the global north uh, create very different outcomes, make it nearly impossible to predict with confidence. Yeah, I mean, given that answer, I'm, I'm not going to try and predict with any confidence what's going to happen. I mean, I guess my, my answer to this was was more about the declining conditions of work in the global north, rather than suddenly everybody having good work all around the world, which I think is not possible under the current system under which we live. I think the interesting thing, though, is that there are a number of ways in which work is becoming much more similar. Um, and I think particularly through the rise of global platforms, there is a convergence of working conditions. And in general, this is experienced as a decline in the global north, loss of employment status, social protections, health and safety, these sorts of things. And they're kind of leveling up in the global south. So a movement out of informality into having a, a, a kind of formal relationship with an organization. I always think about this with, with food delivery, for example, that many of these, you know, the work process is very, very similar, right? But for many people in the global north, it means you're no longer employed by the restaurant or the taxi company. If it's Uber, you're now self-employed. Whereas if you're in India, for example, where I've done a bit of field work, a lot of people have never had formal employment before. And now they have this relationship with Uber or Zomato or, or whatever the, the company is. I think the interesting thing about this, though, is even though it tends towards becoming more similar, national context still matters for the reasons that, that Melanie says, right? Like the state still regulates parts of work, no matter how much companies would like to tell us everything is frictionless and global and so on. Like the national context still matters. And even the Ubers and the Deliveroo's and the Takeaway.coms of this world still have to at least obey some of national regulation 
And so this work takes on particular kind of na national flavors, if you'll excuse the takeaway pun, despite, despite everything. Yeah, I think uh, there's sort of a, a bit to expand there on these platforms, right? I think they're fascinating because they've changed work in a profound way for a lot of people. So I guess the question I would have probably for both of you, but let's start with Jamie is, are they, do they represent a particular challenge towards something like unionism? Do they frustrate workers' attempts to organize or are they just like any other employer? Yes, they're just like any other employer and no, they're different. I think I think both of these are are kind of important things to to kind of think about. I mean, I guess the biggest challenge is that these organizations claim not to be employers. And at first, this is about reducing the wage bill uh, and freeing themselves from the responsibilities that workers have won uh, over previous generations. And in effect, it makes it harder for workers to organize. Um, so in the UK, if you're self-employed, you don't have the same access to protections uh, to organize as a, as a worker because you're, you're not categorized as one, right? I know, again, as somebody who writes about platforms and gig economy and, and these sorts of things, I should say that these are really important and we should spend all our time working on them, right? In part, that's true. In, in another part, this is a very small amount of, this is a small chunk of the work that everybody does. I think what's more interesting about these is they are, and I'm going to steal a phrase from uh, Callum Kant, who wrote an excellent book on Deliveroo, that these are laboratories for capital where they're testing out new strategies. And so in a sense, what happens for uh, Uber and Deliveroo matters hugely for people that work for Uber and Deliveroo. But what's more important about it is what capital learns there about new ways of implementing technology or management strategies that will then be implemented everywhere else. And to, to hopefully make it sound like I'm not this kind of crazy conspiracy theorist, um, Travis Kalanick, the, the previous CEO of Uber, set up two things when he left Uber. One was software for dark kitchens, uh, for running these kind of hidden kitchens that you actually get your delivery food from when you think it's coming from a restaurant. It's actually coming from a shipping container in uh, an industrial estate or whatever. A lot more of this is happening now. So he saw a way to make money from the growth of platform work elsewhere. And he set up a broader staffing agency model of Uber uh, that was tested out with hospitality workers, security guards, and so on, and saw that really the big money for him was applying that model elsewhere uh, and letting venture capital deal with the profitability crisis of Uber and, you know, moving on from it, right? So, yeah, so um, I, I, I think Jamie's analysis is, is spot on. And what I think we all need to always remember is um, these are generally organisations that founded themselves with a particular form of venture capitalism in a capital in a very specific context, usually of Silicon Valley, although increasingly now in other places around the world. And they are they are deliberately testing the boundaries. They're 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 seeing. They're seeing what they can get away with, not just in terms of labour rights, um, but in terms of all sorts of other regulatory regimes. So with Uber, um, the taxi, the regulations around uh, provision of, of taxi services and those kinds of things. Um, that is the point of them. Um, I don't think anyone is predicting that Uber per se will still be with us in 20 years time. But the practices that Uber are challenging and challenging and experimenting with now almost certainly will be in various settings, which I think takes us back to the trade unionism point, which is the some unions have grasped that. Some unions in some particularly national contexts have really grasped that. Some 
politicians have with their regulatory regimes and pushbacks there as well. But by far, that's not the main understanding of what these organizations are doing. And I think that's where we need to get wise to them. And as, as Jamie says, you know, yes, it's really important for the individual Uber drivers that they organize or the individual delivery riders. But that's why collectively all of us need to be paying attention to how we push back on these things. And that's where the nation state. I mean, I think the big actor that we haven't really talked about in this whole podcast is the nation state. We've kind of alluded to it in lots of ways, but where the nation state becomes really important because the labor laws and the regulation of, of taxis take place in a specific ge uh, geographical jurisdictions. And what is possible in Sweden is slightly different than what's possible in Italy or, or the UK. What I find fascinating about the Deliveroo cases and the Uber cases around Europe, Western Europe in particular, is that they have broadly come to the same legal position that the you know it it with different le levels of confidence they've said you know these workers are workers to some extent if they look like a worker they talk like a worker they are a worker you know they've applied some sort of sort of uh, test that says these people are essentially in an employment relationship listen if uh, if capital can use the platform economy as a as a laboratory uh, and then you know there's unions and there's the state the nation state as melanie emphasized uh, couldn't those two actors do the same thing and learn from the platform economy and use the things that they learn for, 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 sure, for the sure. benefit yeah. of you know other parts of the economy yeah. beyond the and specific that, benefits in the platform economy monality understood Absolutely. And that's why the dynamics of employment relations, which is, you know, always one of the, the things that we're trying to emphasize when we when we teach students about employment relations and particularly international and comparative employment relations, we're always emphasizing the dynamics of this process is never just that one snapshot in time. Um, there's always pressures and countervailing pressures within wider context that explain why individual unions or individual organizations or managers or, or sectors you know, get pushed in and pulled in the directions that they do. Um, and we need to always understand that wider context. It's why it's such a fascinating field <laughs> and why I love studying it. <laughs> Great, I'm, I'm gonna intervene now because I know I could literally talk about this for another hour because I find this really, really interesting. Just keep, keep sticking to our own sort of precepts, you know, now, hey, this is enough work for today. Let's, you know, enjoy ourselves a little bit, right? <laughs> it's time for meaningful leisure. But before we do that, I'd like to thank our guests. If you'd like to know more about today's topic, I would highly suggest reading Melanie Sims's What Do We Know and What Should We Know About the Future of Work? and a recent article in the European Journal of Industrial Relations, Trade Unions and Precariat in Europe, Representative Claims. You can follow Melanie on Twitter at SimsMelanie. Also be sure to read Jamie Woodcock's new book edited with Phoebe Moore, Augmented Exploitation, Artificial Intelligence, Automation, and Work. Also check out his new article, Game Workers and Empire, Unionization in the UK Video Games Industry in Games and Culture. Jamie can be followed at Jamie underscore Woodcock. But enough about our excellent guests. Follow us on Twitter at The City Politics, at K underscore Vossing, and of course at GD Blunt, grinding towards that blue tick every day. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Thanks for listening, and don't work too hard.